Welcome, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. I am your host, Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax. This is going to be our final all-original episode of Classic Wrestling Memories for the year 2017. And like a lot of year-end shows, we're going to go into a little bit of retrospect uh, about 2017 and the past shows. And the latter half of the show is going to be devoted to all the talent in the wrestling world that we lost in 2017. So this is really going to be kind of the most modern show we've ever done because, as we keep saying, you know, it's classic wrestling memories. But we're mainly going to be talking about the dream that the show was and how it became a reality and some of our favorite moments of the year. And fortunately, I don't have to do it alone. I do have from the padded cell in South Kakalaki, joining me for this episode, the usual co-host, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, an early Merry Christmas or late Happy Hanukkah or whatever your flavor is this month. I hope everyone's having a safe and uh, happy holiday season. And uh, just looking forward to kind of looking back uh, on 2017 for Classic Wrestling Memories. Yeah, the solstice is over, so the days are going to start getting longer again. So something to look forward to. But really, you know, like I said, the, this show has been in my head for probably two or three years. I remember you first bringing it up to you uh, a year or two before we got started. And our first show was recorded, I want to say, April of this past year, and that was the look at the original Starcade with Mike Mooneyham. And I, I know I've done it off here, but I want to do it on air, Train. I, I just want to thank you for getting somebody the caliber of Mike Mooneyham to be our first guest on this show. Oh, no problem. Mike's a uh, great guy, uh, not only knowledgeable in wrestling, but just, just a good person. And I thought he would be outstanding to talk about that. And quite frankly, he just gave us some stories about, you know, talking to Luthez and some of his stories with Jack Briscoe. You're not going to get there anywhere but here, you know. And, and thanks to Mike for coming on and, and doing that. I, of course, the Crockett territory, the old Charlotte territory, the Atlantic Championship Wrestling is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's what I grew up with. And, you know, the early Starcades were major parts of what made me want to become a wrestler. So it, it, it really was essentially the first, I don't want, it wasn't a pay-per-view, it was, close, it, was, it, was, it was closed circuit, but it was the first major big show that have become kind of the template for what wrestling is and what we know it to be today. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, you could say it was WrestleMania before WrestleMania. And like, like you said, you, you didn't get it on pay-per-view. You had to go to a specific location, whether uh, movie, movie theaters, uh, I, I don't know if... Uh, sports bars would carry them, but you know you you had to get out of the house and go somewhere similar to going to a movie in order to see the event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we actually had it, uh, and I think I brought this up on the episode. We actually went to the building where they did their weekly house show here in Greenville. They just pulled out a big screen and and had a camera up, and and they had changed the seating arrangement, uh, not dissimilar from what it would be for the high school graduations that we used to have in the same building. Uh, and that's that was kind of neat, you know. Uh, it was it wasn't live, but it was just as, almost as good. It was it was neat because it was not only <clears throat> were you seeing it live, and of course this is long before Raw or Nitro, so that was kind of a, a, a very novel idea for the wrestling fan at the time. I was sitting in the crowd with the same people that were there on Monday nights when they did their house shows, so I was still with diehard wrestling fans. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So that was kind of neat. And our second episode, we talked to your friend and mentor Susan Tex Green and. I do want to put it out there that uh, I am going to I I have remixed and kind of remastered that interview, and I'm going to release that in its entirety 
the uh, the the interview you had with Susan for the A One uh, Wrestling Podcast, which is no longer running. It's been replaced with the Wrestling Brethren Podcast. But you did an interview with Susan a couple of years back, and I I'm going to re-release that as a special episode of Classic Wrestling Memories in its entirety. And uh, that that should be coming your way uh, pretty soon. Three hours long, you know, two hours and change. But it, it, for, for those that listen to it, uh, caveat: that actually was recorded with her and me just sitting in the corner of the ring in her tra- in the training building behind her house. We just put the recorder in between us and we went. It was as it was as laid back and uh, familial as you can get, you know. But it, I just she felt comfortable doing it there. I did too. Um, What's more comfortable to two old wrestlers than sitting in a wrestling area and talking about wrestling, right? Mm-hmm. But the second episode of Classic Wrestling Memories, we also, uh, you and I both talked to Susan, really t- about mm-hmm. working the territories in the 1970s. And one of my favorite parts, I'm going to play the clip here, was her talking about appearing on The Tonight Show with Bruno Sammartino. And she had some very interesting things to say about Bruno. Vince Sr. put me on Johnny uh, Carson with Bruno Sammartino. And, and- I didn't particularly like him because he's a big Italian that thought women should stay home and have babies and cook for their husbands. And, and we had no place in the ring. And, 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 you know, I'm 16 years old sitting on national TV and he's sitting there and then Johnny Carson looks at me and, and believe it or not, I stuttered really bad till I got on Johnny Carson. I said, That's just something else that he's going to be able to say. So I talked really slow. <laughs> you weren't going to stutter that night, were you? <laughs> yeah, that, that night I wasn't stuttering. And, and, and Mr. Carson says, well, we can tell you're from Texas. <laughs> and I thought, that, that's really wild right there. That's that's really wild. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. That's a good Johnny. <laughs> I could see Bruno being an old-time Italian guy feeling that way, though. You know what? Mm-hmm. To me, it's not that it's any sort of overt sexism or anything like that, which would be what he'd be called now it's just it was the way he was raised it was the culture he grew up in right and, and from a from a completely professional point of view the houses were big in that territory let's be honest because bruno was on top and he probably didn't like the women getting being second from the top because that's what they were on those shows getting that big payoff when he probably felt it should have gone to some of the guys that were doing the undercard all year long there's probably some of that at play too you know mm-hmm. um, I, I, I understand Susan's point of view and I understand Bruno's point of view and I respect both of them way too much to say either one of them is right or wrong. Right. So I'll leave it at that. Mm-hmm. The third episode we did was the Gold Dust Trio, which I really enjoyed doing that show because I learned so much because uh, that's an area mm-hmm. of wrestling that I really didn't know that much about. And I, I did some of my research and you, you obviously knew a whole lot more than I did, but I think I learned just enough to be able to keep up. And mm-hmm. The Gold Dust Trio was, of course, Billy Sandow, Ed Strangler-Lewis, and Toots Mont, and they kind of laid the template for what would become modern wrestling. So if you're a fan of kind of the roots of wrestling and the inspirations for wrestling, that is definitely a must-hear uh, episode. It's Volume 3, The Gold Dust Trio. Any any memories of that episode? Yeah, I was really looking forward to when we did that one because part of our idea when we brainstormed this podcast was to go no more current than the Attitude Era and to go all the way back to, you know, turn of the century, late 1800s, if we could. And that was by and far the the farthest we went back in any of our episodes. And that's not to say we're not going to go back that far again or even farther back. I think we will in future episodes. But it was the first time and probably the only time 
in this current year that we we, we did that. And so that was kind of neat. Um, I, I am definitely uh, a pro self-professed and proud of the fact I consider myself old school. That was as old school as it got. And you can't really know where you're going if you don't know where you came from. And, and like that episode discusses, if you go back and listen, they did create what essentially is current pro wrestling. Now, obviously the moves have changed and television, a lot of things, but the, the basic format of work versus shoot and baby face heel and, you know, running a, running a circuit and having a booker and all that kind of, all that stuff finishes storylines and angles. That was all created by the gold dust trio. Um, thank God that they existed because who knows what would happen to wrestling. It would be very different than what we know now. Right, the whole art and slate of hand of the villain comes into town and the good guy it has him on the ropes, the villain cheats to win, and, and yeah, you know, you, the good guy didn't win, but boy, you know he's going to get him next time and you're going to pay your money to come back next time. You know? Sure, and I think the idea of a, of a traveling world champion, which is what Ed, Ed, Ed Strangler-Lewis was, they invented that. You know, they helped consolidate the world title, and that, you know, obviously kind of went away as Vince McMahon took things national. But from the time they started that in the 20s until, goodness, what, the late 80s, that was the template, at least in the, in, you know, the NWA, which was the most recognizable and known wrestling uh, entity out there. So that became very important out of them, too. We also had a series of episodes, uh, and I really liked doing these because I got to role play a little bit. I call it the 101 series. We had Babyface 101, Heel 101, and Booking 101. And I don't know if we'll do any more 101 episodes in the future. I guess it's just because, just if one of us gets an idea that would work uh, as a 101 type episode. But uh, I hope you had as much fun doing those 101 episodes as I did. They were interesting for me because it was. I haven't hidden the fact that I'm I'm not as pleased with the current wrestling fans as, as I'd like to be. I, I feel like sometimes they're too smart for their own good. And I'm not saying that because I, I'm trying to be a butt. I think they're doing themselves a disservice and not being able to enjoy the product as much as they could if they would just buy into it, you know. Um, so it was very, very interesting for a person who actually, you know, who wrestled for a living and for obvious reasons has very personal and strong views on what, is and isn't good wrestling and what should and shouldn't happen um, as opposed to a guy who's never done it, but who I have respect for and who has a little bit better understanding of the modern fans perspective tempered with the fact that you also are a fan of old timey wrestling too. So it was, it was fun for me to get that, get that. I'm very hard headed. I don't see things, other people's ways a lot, especially where it comes to wrestling. Uh, you kind of helped me with that. And it was interesting and intriguing for me. Um, and that was uh, eye-opening, to say the least. Did you learn anything from those? Yeah, definitely. Because uh, uh, one of my favorite moments in that was in the babyface and heel. And I came up with a list of stuff a babyface or heel would never do and what they would always do. And you kind of gave your input and whether I was right or maybe a little bit off base. Uh, but you look at the pictures that I very crudely photoshopped for the episodes and <laughs> flanking the baby face side ricky the dragon steamboat bruno sammartino hulk hogan dusty Rhodes, ricky morton and sting you know all great baby faces and then on the heel side is bobby heenan rick rude ted dibiase rick flair harley race and jim Cornette. 
That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's two Mount Rushmore's, isn't it? <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> or three, actually, with that, with that many people. But uh, it's all Hall of Famers. It's, mm-hmm. um, I think at the end of the day, uh, the, the thing that everybody needs to understand, even the fans uh, who complain about the per- current product, wrestling works its best when it has baby faces and heels. Now, it's much more difficult and subtle with today's particular climate, you know, socially, politically, or however you want to look at it. But it still exists. And I think that it's fascinating to me, and this is part of what you helped me understand when we did those, Seth, was that as much as the current fans are very much of this of this generation where those areas are much more gray, they understand and want to see baby faces and heels. They just don't necessarily know how or what they want the heels and the baby faces to be, you know? So... Mm-hmm. That was that was definitely something I gleaned from those. And I, I say once again what I said in those episodes. If they want to know what good baby faces and heels are, go go look at some of the work of some of the guys we talked about on those episodes. And maybe that'll, you know. And then tell me, is anybody on ROH or Lucha Underground or WWE doing any of those things? And if they are, uh, who are they? And how effective are they? Those kind of things. Maybe, maybe I, I think those episodes... For me, besides the fact that I, I got to learn something from them, I hope that there's something that helps our listeners go back and look at things uh, and then compare it to what's going on today and, and, and you know think. Food for thought, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Now, episode six was probably the one I knew the least about. So it mm-hmm. really was kind of more uh, your show along with uh, our guest, Dan the Dragon Wilson, and that was volume six, The Great Memphis Split, talking about the formation of uh, Jerry Jarrett's M- Memphis wrestling and the uh, as he split from Nick Goulas's Memphis wrestling. Right. Well, I want to thank Dan once again publicly for coming on and doing that. I had a blast with him being on here. Very knowledgeably. That was Memphis wrestling to him is what Mid Atlantic Championship wrestling is to me. It's what he grew up on. Uh, it, just like me, Dan has put food on the table uh, from wrestling. He's a great announcer, uh, a great manager, and is currently still in the wrestling business uh, booking for Anarchy Wrestling down in Cornelia, Georgia. Um, great guy, very knowledgeable, and had firsthand knowledge because his uncle is Gypsy Joe, who was a major star in both the pre- and post-Ghoulis Memphis territories. So I thought he really brought something to the table, and I want to thank him again publicly for coming on. Uh, he brought a lot, I thought, to the table. And though I am not the biggest fan of Memphis wrestling, uh, it's still a slight world better than the old WWWF, in my opinion, as a Southern-based fan. <laughs> uh, and it was kind of fun because whether you like Memphis or you agree with Dan or you agree with me, a lot of great things and, and historical and memorable things came out of that territory. There's no question about that. Not the least of which is Jerry the King Lawler. I mean, you know, there's oh, a reason. Yeah. You know, he, Jerry Lawler is called the king because he was the king of Memphis wrestling. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and long before, long before Hugh Jackman or Mickey Rourke or Stephen Amell were doing stuff for Vince McMahon, Andy Kaufman was doing things with Jerry Lawler in Memphis. So think about that. Volume eight is probably the most modern episode we've done because it's right around that attitude era that we said was the cutoff point, and that was the episode that was devoted to the NWO. And really, I think it was just the first two years of the NWO when it was still good. But, <laughs> you know, 
if you're of my ilk and big WCW fan, that's definitely an episode you're going to want to hear. Plus, I mean, if you're a WCW guy, a show about the NWO probably has you at Hello, but that show was a lot of fun to do. And of course, it was a show that I probably had to do the least amount of research for because I still remember some of those episodes like they were yesterday. Right. What a great, come on, that's one of the best entrance songs ever. Kudos to whoever wrote that song. That was awesome. I, the NWO, I still I said it in that episode, and I say it again to this day. When your heels are truly heels, and your baby faces are truly baby faces, and it's creative, and it's new, and it's fresh, my God, it is magic. And that first, what, three, four months of, between Scott Hall showing up until, what, probably sold out their first pay-per-view, which was like six months later, what a great introduction and, and start to a, a a mind-blowingly awesome angle. Wow. As I put in the show notes, the first sentence is, it was arguably one of the greatest angles in wrestling history. And and the and let's be honest, the long-lasting effects of that angle, look at wrestling is part of what wrestling is today is directly linked to the NWO and, and the Monday Night Wars that it begat. Don't you agree? Absolutely, yeah. And volume nine is... Probably the saddest episode we've done, but it's also one of the funniest because we talked about the passing of the late, great Bobby the Brain Heenan. We did that, like, literally a day or two after he passed. So, you know, the, the memories were very fresh in our mind, and the, the news was very fresh in our mind. And, you know, we talked Bobby going all the way back to, uh, I, think he, I think he first got into wrestling in Indiana, so with the WWA. And so you'll hear some very fun stories about a very young Bobby Heenan and uh, all about his work all through the AWA and and uh, World Wrestling Federation. Greatest manager of all time. Mm-hmm. End of story. Yeah, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about Bobby in the latter half of the show. Uh, so uh, we'll move on to Volume Ten, which is about Capital Wrestling Corporation. As any wrestling historian knows, Capital Wrestling Corporation was the company that would eventually, long story short, morph into the WWE. Yep. Uh, Another one of those where we kind of went back farther than we normally go. And so that was, you know, that one was like much like the old dust trio was for you. That one was for me. It was kind of fun to do some of the research on that. Talk to some of my old timer friends that had worked for Vince senior. Um, you know, that was, so that's uh, any excuse for me to, to talk to, to some of these legends that I'm friends with that are still with us. I'll take it. And finally, uh, volume 11 with your friend, Chris Nelson, we did championship wrestling from Florida, mainly the, 70s, 80s era, which when Florida really was arguably the top place to work in, and according to a lot of the talent you've talked to, one of the most fun places to work in, obviously Eddie Graham, Dusty Rhodes, Scott Hall, just the the plethora of names that came out of Florida. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mike Graham, Steve Kern, Blackjack Mulligan, the, 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 the Briscoes, the list goes on and on, and just tremendous talents that became stars in that territory. And once again, I want to publicly thank Chris for coming on and doing that show with us. Former three-time NWA World Tag Team Champion. We, we can't say that without, say his name without mentioning that. And uh, hopefully, I, I'd hope to get, you know, a lot of the guests that we've had on this, this, this past year, I hope that we would be able to do something down the road with a couple of them that would, um, you know, they would, they would be also experts on. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that later at the end of the show. But maybe what, what what you got to look forward to in 2018, but uh, I digress. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to take a look at many of the great wrestling talents that we lost in 2017. This is Classic Wrestling Memories, and we'll be right back. 
Now available on iTunes and Stitcher. Geekville Radio. Geekville Radio is a show dedicated to news and subjects in the world of geekery. Superheroes, science fiction, comics, gaming, TV. If it qualifies as something for nerds or geeks, you'll find it at Geekville Radio. From one quarter of the creative team that brings you the A1 podcast, Geekville Radio is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at geekvilleradio.com. All right, we're back, and I have a list in front of me. And admittedly, it's probably not everybody, but 20, I have a list of many of the... Excuse me. <clears throat> there we go. But I have a list in front of me of many of the people of, from the world of wrestling that have passed in 2017. And I guess we'll just start off with some of the big ones. Uh, I know we just talked about them, and we do have an entire show dedicated to his memory. Uh, but anything else about Bobby Heenan that you wanted to share, Train? Just, you know, go back and listen to that episode. What an amazing talent. Uh, I don't think a lot of fans understand how good he was at so many different aspects of what we do in the wrestling business. And um, I said it in the episode, and I'll say it again. All arguments about Bobby Heenan being the greatest manager of all time start and stop with this. Any other name you can think of, that includes Paul Heyman, that includes Jim Cornette, that includes J.J. Dillon. That includes, you know, uh, any of the other modern uh, managers you can think of. If you ask them who the greatest manager of all time is, they will say Bobby the Brain Heenan. I think that's where this argument begins and stops right there. I agree, and I remember texting you this a couple days ago. You know, one of the many things about Bobby's health going south, because uh, you know, obviously he had trouble speaking for the last 10 years. Could you imagine if Bobby hadn't gotten sick and just stayed with it. Could you imagine if Bobby Heenan had a podcast? I mean, that, that just, it's just mind blowing to think about. I think Jericho and Austin and Jr. would have some competition for the most downloads by a wrestling personality podcast. Don't you <laughs> yeah. just say it. <laughs> and I think all three of them would have had no problems with that at all. That's just, I don't want to speak for, for those three gentlemen, but pretty sure they would agree with me on that one. Well, heck, they'd all, they'd all be listening. They'd all be binge, binge listening. <laughs> yeah, they'd probably all be guests at one point or another. <laughs> I mean, he, he interacted with all three at one point or another in their career. So, mm-hmm. Now, if Bobby Heenan was the greatest manager of all time, and if Gordon Soley was the greatest announcer of all time, uh, I, I think it was Wade Keller. It was either Wade Keller or Dave Meltzer said, you know, if, if those are true, then Lance Russell was the greatest host of all time as far as hosting a wrestling program. Probably. And, yeah, I, I think that's that's hard to argue. Uh, now, I don't nearly know as much about Lance as, as you do because I really briefly only saw him in WCW when I first started watching in, like, 90 or 91. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know he has that rich history with Memphis, and I think he did some stuff for Smoky Mountain as well, but... Uh, right, we, we probably could we, we we could probably dedicate an entire show to him. In fact, in fact, I think we will uh, in the near future. Sure. But uh, any quick thoughts about Lance Russell? No, I, once again, go back to the episode where we discussed the the great ref, great Memphis wrestling split. Uh, Dan brought some interesting stories about Lance and you know and and how important he was to that particular incident and just how important overall uh, the announcers were the the legendary ones. Uh, back in the territorial days, whether you're talking Bill Mercer in Dallas or Bob Cottle here in the Carolinas or Ed Whalen up in Calgary, well, of all those, Lance and Gordon were the top two. You know, they were the, the cream of the crop of all those guys. And that's no disrespect to the guys I mentioned. Um, 
obviously Bob Cottle has a very dear and dear place to my heart. But Lance was just awesome. You know, he was so vital to what made Memphis a, a clicking territory. And uh, that would probably be a good prelude uh, into what Lance meant to wrestling in that particular episode. And like you said, I think somewhere down the line, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely, that might be a good one to get Dan back on, you know. Dan probably could bring something to the mm-hmm. table on that. I can't help but wonder if the current New Japan announcer, commentator, uh, Kevin Kelly, I, I can't help but wonder if he got, oh, come on, from Lance Russell, <laughs> you know. Twitch would seem plausible, you know. It's just one of those, I mean, that was his thing. Oh, come on. That was like, you know, Gordon, ah, it's just the same thing. Mm-hmm. So. Or uh, Gene Okerlund's, you have got to be kidding me. You know? yeah, yeah. I cannot believe. Exactly. Our Vince McMahon's, hey, no. <laughs> Vince never yeah. said anything, but he was really excited. Everything he announced. And I think we could add that Gene Okerlund is probably the best interviewer of all oh, time. Yeah. Uh, him and then uh, you know Gordon was good at that too. But all these guys were absolutely legendary. And I pray when we do this again in 2018 that Gene Okerlund isn't going to be on that episode. But I don't know how much longer he's going to be with us either. But apparently his health is pretty good for his age, so one can hope. That's mm-hmm. one I think is going to hit you pretty hard. Am I wrong in feeling that way? Absolutely. But another one that I know hit you pretty hard uh, because you actually worked with the man and and knew him a bit. Uh, the, the Russian bear, Ivan Koloff. Oh, Uncle Ivan. Yeah, that one is, uh, I took that one pretty hard. Um, Ivan was obviously one of the top heels here in the Carolinas when I was a kid. The I've said it before and I'll say it again. The way Dusty Rhodes booked and built Nikita Koloff to be the, you know, the great foreign menace heel that he was in 84, 85, that eventually led to you know, him you know, turning babyface essentially because of the accident of Magnum TA and the need to fill that spot. Um, that was, in my opinion, the greatest building ever of a foreign menace heel in wrestling, with maybe only Pac Song Nam being even close. And once again, Dusty was involved in that angle, so that's probably where he got some of the ideas for Nikita, right? Um, but that whole angle does not work without Ivan Koloff. Uh, the, the Uncle Ivan being the connection to the Kremlin, there's going to be training Nikita to be this Russian nightmare because the Kremlin told him to, and it just doesn't work. I mean, it, it, Nikita had a okay promo. He had the accent down, but it was hard to understand. Ivan's promos were fantastic. They made that click, and this was 10 years after he had stunned the world by cleanly beating Bruno for the WWF title. So he was already a legend by that point, and um, just old school and would take all kinds of bumps and, and was a bumping machine, especially for that. Then he wasn't going to do these modern bumps where, you know, he takes 15 somersaults off the top of the building with his hair on fire. But the amount of bumps he took were insane for his, his time period and was just very believable as a rough and rugged. wasn't the biggest guy in the world. I was only about 5'10", 5'11", but very believable as just a rugged, tough guy, but also believable in having a, a skill of technical in some of the holds and movers he used. Uh, with all that being said, though, once you met Ivan, just the sweetest, nicest man you could ever meet. He's one of those rarities in the wrestling business. I don't think I've ever talked to anybody in the business that had a bad thing to say about the man. Just was the nicest guy, sweet and charitable and fun to be around, uh, had converted to Christianity and moved into the ministry in his later years and was seemed very much at peace and happy with, with that. And his lovely wife, Renee, who he was with for years, 
stood by him through thick and thin, uh, was constantly by his side in his later years when I got to know him, uh, had a very uh, private and pointed and poignant conversation with her on the phone a couple of weeks after his passing, um, just to let her know how much her, her husband meant to me. Um, so yeah, it was tough. It was, it was a tough one. Uh, I know he's in a better place. He was, he lived a very full, rich life and we need more Ivans in the wrestling business. We just, we don't have any people like that anymore. And I've, I've constantly find myself saying stuff like that on this particular show, you know, guys that were rough and rugged and could handle themselves, but at the same time were gentlemen and, and understood the business for what it was. And they just don't make them like that anymore. And, uh, so guys like Ivan will be missed for sure. I haven't seen the the video with sound, but when Ivan beat Bruno, I've heard Captain Lou Albano say that you you know you could have heard a pin drop, and and I think even Bruno said he, he thought something went wrong and he went deaf by taking that knee drop because he didn't hear anything. When in reality, the crowd was so shocked that yeah. the living legend—well, he wasn't a living legend yet—but the great Bruno Sammartino, after a near seven-year title reign lost cleanly to this yep. foreign menace. And that's the type of reaction you don't get anymore. Yeah. And it also probably tells you the kind of respect even Bruno had for Ivan to, to you know, do business with him like that. You know, it's, it's uh, believe me, Bruno had enough stroke even back then to, if he didn't want to do the job or didn't like the way a finish was, he could tell Vince Sr., no, we're not going to do that. But he obviously willingly went along with it. And, well, it became a very important part of wrestling history. So Bruno was right. Well, uh, I think you said you told the story on, I want to say it was Geekville, but if you don't mind telling the story again, uh, you actually worked at Battle Royal with Ivan at one oh, point. Oh, sure. Yeah. Very early in my career, very late in his. And, Bru- and, and you know, at that point, Ivan had gotten to where he wasn't getting to do a whole lot anymore. So Battle Royal was a good thing for him. You bring him in, he gets the nostalgia pop from the crowd, especially here in the Carolinas. Um, all you're doing in a, in a battle royal is punches and kicks anyways, right? So it's nothing difficult. Um, obviously, I don't know if you've heard this before, but uh, if you haven't, learning how to throw a convincing-looking work punch is one of the hardest things you have to learn how to do as a wrestler. And uh, it takes a lot. Some guys never get it down. Guys like, you know, Dean Malenko or Dory Funk Jr. never learned how to throw them. That's why they threw those, those uppercuts, Steve Williams, or uh, Steve Regal, you know? They'll tell you, I could never throw a work punch, so I threw those uppercuts or I threw those, those forearms. Um, I know he's not a full-time worker, but uh, Shane McMahon, you know. Yes. Terrible, yeah, yeah, terrible punches. <laughs> and he'd probably be the first to tell you his punches look like crap. And, and, and I bet you most of the guys that have been in the ring with Shane would tell you they hurt like crap, too. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I digress. Back to Ivan Koloff. So Ivan had me back him into the corner, and you know, we're crowded. There. And I had met him in the locker room. And, and I was, it was obvious to him that I was a fan of his growing up and that I was nervous being in the ring with who I, you know, legitimately saw as a legend, rightfully so. Um, and I had him in the corner, and my punches were not good. I did not develop a good working punch until many years into my career. And because of that, I didn't want to hit him in the face because I didn't want, to, didn't want to look bad and whiff, and I also didn't want to potato the crap out and break his jaw. So I decided to start punching him in the stomach figuring, well, if I, if I tater him a little bit, at least he's got not as bad as his face. And I'm worried because he's a legend, and I kind of kind of whiff, kind of lighter than I should have been. And he looked at me, and he said, no, I'll lay it in there, kid. So I snugged up a little bit more and still wasn't great. He said, no, lay it in there, kid. Well, the third one, I about buried my, my fist into his stomach 
wrist deep. You know, <laughs> I felt his stomach go in. I, 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 it was, it was strong style to say the least. And he looked at me and I was so worried thinking that I, oh, oh crap, I just punched the snot out of a, you know, a legend. And he looked at me and just smiled, but not in a way that the fans knew that he was smiling. I said, that's how I like it, kid. Do it again. And I did it. And that was that. And, um, Later on, you know, I was concerned and went to him in the locker room after the match, and 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 I went uh, ostensibly to apologize for hitting him so hard, and uh, tell him that I didn't mean any disrespect by it. And he cut me off before I could ever really get that fully out. And he said, "No, no, no, kid. I, I knew that you, that you were green, and I respect this business this much, and you this much. But I didn't want you or the business to look bad. That's my job as the veteran. Wow, to give his body like that to some young kid." We could have heard him. That's what wrestling is supposed to be about in our brotherhood. I learned that that night. And it's a pretty amazing story. I mean, that, that's the type of story that I like to hear because it just, I don't want to say it peels back the curtain, but something that, that, that personal, you know. Again, it's the type of stuff you're not going to get on, on other podcasts. You know, somebody talking about working a match with, with Ivan Koloff. That one incident parlayed itself into, uh, fortunately for me, a friendship that lasted until we, we sadly lost him earlier this year. Well, that's what that's what the brotherhood should be. That's what I call it. Mm-hmm. But so many guys don't understand that anymore. And Ivan actually showed you the the video, his copy of the video of him beating Bruno, right? Yeah, it is home. It is home. Yeah. Morset, North Carolina. Do you know if that had sound or? Mm-mm. Oh, okay. It had it had retro commentary that okay. he, it obviously was a copy that had been given to him by someone that okay. had had commentary done later on because I want to say the commentary that he had on his was like maybe Bobby and Gorilla. Okay. Or maybe, you know, so I did tell you he tried to sell me insurance for one of the first times I met him, didn't I? <laughs> I think you did tell me that, yeah. Like so many other former wrestlers had, had parlayed his ability to be charismatic and talk, which is a vital <laughs> importance in the wrestling. You need that in sales, too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we kind of are salesmen, aren't we? Um, he had parlayed that into a fairly successful in, insurance salesman job when his, the ring clear was over. And I had been forewarned by a lot of guys. Now, when Ivan first meets you, he's going to try to sell you insurance. And what he didn't know was that I had a part-time job. And at the time, my ex-wife had a job, too. So we, And about the time we had found out that our son was autistic, so he had disabilities from the federal government, uh, that we were quite well taken care of, but I appreciated it. And he kind of just chuckled and said, well, I just wanted to take care of one of my brothers, make sure you were okay. You know? and, and, you know, I would normally feel that coming from an insurance salesman, I want a line of crap. He doesn't care about me. He was just trying to make a buck. But from coming from Ivan, I really think he meant it when he said, I just love you and want to make sure you were taken care of and so was your family. I think he really meant that. And that's rare not only in the wrestling business especially, but I think in the world in general. So that's kind of a uh, you know reflection of who the man was, at least in my interactions. And, and like I said earlier, I can't think of anyone that I've ever heard say anything bad about Ivan, so I don't think I was, in the, I was in the minority there. Well, another one, as of this recording, we lost uh, just a couple weeks ago, and this is one that I can speak on a little bit, just seeing some of his work as a fan, and that's Tom Zank, who I saw in WCW in the early 90s as the Z-Man Tom Zank, you know, teaming with Brian Pillman, and I think he feuded with Arn Anderson, had a run with the mm-hmm. TV title, uh, yep. had a, was light heavyweight champion, which became the cruiserweight championship, and I guess he really got kind of, I don't know if burned out's the, the word, but he left the business at a fairly young age, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I don't know if he was young, but I, 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 
he wasn't one of those guys who stayed past his welcome, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. It was shocking to me when we got the news that he had passed away. Um, I, I've talked about it here before. I'm an, I'm an avowed fan and, and regular listener to the Tony Schiavone podcast, What Happened When. Yeah, as am I, yeah. And there's kind of a running joke there that Conrad Thompson, the co-host, likes to pick on Tony because Tony was an unabashed fan of Tom Zink. He got what Tom Zink was supposed to be in WCW, which was a white meat babyface. He was a good-looking guy with a good build for the chicks, you know. Yeah. And um, I got that as a teenager watching. Sure, and I know that wasn't that was not that in vogue for the male fan back then, and definitely isn't for the male fan now. But I thought Tom was very effective at that. Um, my respect for Tom came up. Um, he did do some goofy things in the ring that, as a worker, I look back and go, "What the hell was he thinking?" And Corn- Jim Cornette likes to. Uh, kind of poke fun at some of those on his podcast, too. But Jim does it in, in, in good spirit because he's like Tom, too. He's openly said that. Um, where I gained respect for Tom was while early on in the business, for those of you that a uh, few of you remember, I know you remember this, Seth, Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez had a Internet radio show on an Internet radio uh, site called com, which no longer exists. But... What mm-hmm. that show became is what the podcasts are now related to the Observer and Figure Four. Right, right, absolutely. Um, one, one of the things, if I ever meet Dave or Brian, uh, I, mm-hmm. I'll tell them, and they, they already know it, but I think they'd like to hear it. Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez are basically podcasting before there were podcasts. <laughs> exactly. Just like, just like Barbara was country before country was cool. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, yeah, anyway they, I would listen to that. So this was in the early parts of my career, you know. And they, because this was this show was on in the midst of the Monday Night Wars, there was essentially a ban from Turner and from from Vince on their talents being on the show. But one of the early guests they were able to get was Tom Zink. And by this point, Tom had been out of the business what probably four or five years at that point, late nineties, and had had moved on to a fairly successful real estate career in his you know home home of Minneapolis. And it was so refreshing to hear a guy who I considered a brother who was not trying to be the worker that we all are guilty of all the time uh, and not wanting, I mean, Russ is a very political business. You never want to step on anybody's toes. You never want to burn a bridge because you, you, you don't never know. And it was very obvious from the way Tom answered questions, some of them quite colorfully, so to speak. He wasn't looking for a job. He was very happy that his wrestling career was over. over. He, was, he was at peace with what it was. And so he was just brutally honest about things. And that was refreshing. Um, don't know if that's the greatest thing for kayfabe, for a guy who loves kayfabe like me, but it is what it is. So um, that, that's where I gained respect for him. And he seemed quite pragmatic about what he was and where, what his position was. And I'm guilty of, as, as are most former wrestlers, we're not always as pragmatic as we should be about what our careers were. And he seemed to be. So that's where my respect gains great leaps and bounds to Tom Zane. Plus, let me be honest, Can-Am Connection, him and, him and, and, and Martell, that's one of the, the most underappreciated tag teams of the 80s when, the, when tag team was arguably at its hottest. Yeah. Uh, they, they're, not spoke, they're not spoken about in the same breath as, say, the Bulldogs or the Hart Foundation or either one of the Expresses or some of those other, you know, legendary tag rockers of, of the 80s. But my God, they were good, you know? Wow. I think had they stayed together, they actually might have. Now, my understanding mm-hmm. is Zank left over money, I want to say. And that is correct. Short, shortly after that, Martel formed Strike Force with with Tito, which was another great team. But it's also also underrated. <laughs> yes, 
Yes, absolutely. Now, as two tag team guys, as two tag team guys, boy, we sure miss the eighties, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> wow, that was some great tag teams in the eighties. The other thing I wanted to bring up about Tom Zank, and this really is kind of heartbreaking. It's almost like um, a Von Erichs type thing. That area of Minnesota, they all went to the same high school, and I think we're all the same grade, so almost exactly the same age. Do you know who mm-hmm. uh, Tom Zink's classmates were? Yeah, he was. He was. He was. His classmates, I think, was Nikita, uh, Darso, one or two of both of the Road Warriors, Rick Rude and Kurt. Right? Yeah, those. I was going to bring up three of Rick Rude, Kurt Hennig, and Brady Boone. Who? I'm not aware of this. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I forgot uh, about Brady. Yeah, all, all four of those are, are gone now. But they they were best friends uh, in in high school. So you know. Mm-hmm. It's just sad when you think about it. Yeah, and if I remember right, Tom was also a former Mr. Minnesota, so he was in bodybuilding before he got into wrestling. That is true, so he yes. he had the look coming in, coming in the door. At a time, let's be honest, because of you know Luger and Hogan and, and Warrior and the Road Warriors, that look was very, very vital to the success of a lot of guys in that era. But he brought athleticism, I thought, to, to guys with that build that some of the other guys we mentioned did, you know? Right. Uh, it might not be the fairest comparison, but to give a modern example, even though you wouldn't call him a white meat babyface, but a guy with a great body that looks like a bodybuilder that can move really well, uh, Neville. You know, so he's yeah. pro- he's probably more agile than Tom was, but I, I think it's comparable that this was a guy who who's jacked to the gills, but can fly around with the cruiserweights. Sure, I'll throw another guy in there who doesn't fly around as much because he's a little bigger than Tom or Neville, but he's in that same category. Rowan Reigns. Mm-hmm. Got a bodybuilder look, but but it's I mean pretty athletic for a guy with that kind of build. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't. I, I Seth Rollins too. Quite frankly, he's got a really nice build. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of Roman Reigns, uh, it would be remiss if we didn't uh, mention the passing of his brother Matt. Uh, I, I keep messing up the last name, so I'm sorry. But Anawaye. Anawaye. Okay. There you go. Probably either or. Probably best known about ten years ago in WWE as Rosie, you know, part part of Three Minute Warning, and then and then the superhero and all that. So that he that he is actually the physical brother of Roman Reigns. So you know, yeah. you know, Roman Reigns is probably still something that close. I don't think he ever truly recover from. But so no, you know, I I just I I always felt bad for Roman when that happened. We I don't think we need to talk about it a whole lot, but there's always you know, the undercurrent about untimely deaths in the wrestling business. And there are, we have a lot. Um, I'm not going to deny that. Um, and it's also well known that that whole family, uh, how important they've been to the wrestling business and a wide family, what they've contributed either directly or through marriage and other stuff. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's literally could be its own wing of any kind of hall of fame about pro wrestling. When you look at, you know, Yoko and, and rock and, and the Usos and the original Wild Smolens and their their grandmother being a promoter and Maivia and I mean it goes on and on and on right. Uh, so to see that an untimely death in that family is even you know more tragic. I guess I, I, if you can I don't know if you really put a a, a level or you know quantify her death, but it, it is sad. He was young and and I never got to meet Rosie, but uh, many people that I have my friends with in the business speak very highly of him. And uh, I do have friends that are Samoan, both in and out of the business. They tend to be very happy, uh, go lucky, fun people to be around. Don't want to make them mad. Now they're they're double double tough. They're you know two dollar steak tough to quote Jen Ross, but 
doesn't mean they weren't aren't nice people. And, it, you know, it, it's got to be rough for the whole family because he was like, what, 40-something? He wasn't much older than me, I don't think. Right. Might have been younger. Yeah, I'm not sure offhand. But, Let uh, me double-check. Uh, 47, so yeah, just about the, about the same age. He's a year age. older than me. Yeah. Yeah, he's only a year older than me. And, and he is a cautionary tale that sadly is also part of his family's legacy with Yokozuna. Um, weight issues can cause you problems. They, they, can, they can take you from this earth early. Um, that's not only true with wrestlers. We've seen it with like Reggie White football, you know, uh, who also had a very brief run in wrestling. So um, maybe I need to be looking in the mirror myself. <laughs> I've been on a little weight since I quit wrestling. So, but yeah, I, 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 I do think that a guy who was that tough and came from that legacy of a family was so good and so fun and, you know, and the gimmick that he did with, with Shane as the sidekick kind of speaks to, I think, not only his talent, but his professionalism, don't you? Absolutely, yeah. Another major name that we lost uh, really was marred in controversy for the for the last couple of years of his life, but uh, definitely Hall of Fame-worthy career, and that is Superfly Jimmy Snuka. And I mainly have memories of Snuka from the early 90s when he was had basically gone down to the mid-card to get other guys over. And, of course, he's probably most famous for being... Well, not most famous, but to the modern fan, he's probably kind of trivially known for being the first WrestleMania opponent of The Undertaker. Right. Well, you know, I apart from his, you know, like you said, the controversy at the end of his life, and I'm sorry you can't discuss Jimmy Snuka without bringing that up because it just is what it is. Um, he was also part of that. He wasn't a direct on but it was related to them somehow through wrestling or through marriage, I mean. Um, he, it's hard to talk about him because of, 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 we, of what went down. But with that being said, on a personal note, um, the two of the things that are probably most important to the crazy train's life in wrestling directly relate to Jimmy Snuka. One of the first live shows I went to, um, he was in the middle of a very heated feud in the early 80s here in the Carolinas against Sergeant Slaughter. And this is, you know, years before either one of them had their mainstream national success with Vince McMahon in the WWF. And Jimmy Snuka went up top for his famous, you know, Superfly off the top. And that was perspiration on the ropes or what. He slipped and fell through the outside and landed legitimately on his head on the concrete of the floor of the Greenville Memorial Auditorium. And the crowd stunned silent. He split his head wide open. I thought he was dead. And, you know, they immediately brought the paramedics out and put him on a, on a stretcher. He was gone. And it was very obvious. And this is the 19, early 1980s when kayfabe was definitely a big deal. Even us in the crowd were like, that was like, in a morbid, subtle way, proof to us that wrestling was real, if that makes any sense. Like, that wasn't planned. That wasn't supposed to happen. And, and, and even though Sarge tried to stay in character, you could sense there was concern on his part as well. And this was his opponent that night, you know. Um, wrestling got very real for me that night, and it was a very indelible memory that I still think of. Um, and to show you how tough he was, he was back on TV in a week. Wow, you know. Um, but the other, more even more personal for me, um, I don't talk a lot about my personal life outside of, you know, my wrestling and a little bit about my family here. And that's my choice. Uh, but uh, before I went to college, right after high school, uh, I, I served a mission for my church. And I think I might have mentioned that before. And uh, I actually met Jimmy Schnickel while I was serving a mission for my church. 
um, because some of the members of the congregation that we were attached to were Polynesian, and they were related to Jimmy, and he had come to town to visit the family. And I, to steal a wrestling term, marked out seeing him at church and walked over, and, and he was very happy and smiling, which is why it's so hard for me to see from what the man that I met this one day to hear the allegations and, and the story of what happened that fateful night in that hotel room and to see him at the end of his life, see how they kind of conflict and how it's very hard for me. But he was just the nicest guy to me, and he had on, it was funny, instead of having on a shirt and tie or, or a suit like most of the gentlemen at church that day, he had on like a knit polo shirt with a nice pair of dress pants. And I asked him about why he never shirted a tie on, and he said, he said, you know, I tried one of those one time. Every time I do, I put my arms like this, and he crossed his arms in front of him, this shirt go rip. So I just had to go with this. <laughs> it was funny, but... Um, you know, he, I asked him, I told him, I, my dream is to be a professional wrestler and to tie this back into to some things we discussed earlier. He said, he, he at first kind of played it off, but then he could tell as, as we continued to talk for, we were just in the foyer of the church, by the way, after the service, you know, um, he, he could tell I was serious and he's like, where are you from? Where do you live? And I told him, you know, South Carolina. And he goes, Oh, and he remembered working here in the Carolinas for Crockett. And he talked about having fond memories here. And he said, I tell you what, he said, you get back to South Carolina, you find Ivan Koloff. I know he trains guys. He, he'll train you right. How funny is that? That the advice he gave me turned out to be in a guy who didn't train me, but I did eventually meet early in my career here in the Carolinas and befriended. So I kind of, really kind of came full circle there, you know? Um, and he was very honest. I'm not going to go into detail what he told me. That's between me and, and Jimmy. But what he told me as a guy who was not smart to the business, but a guy he sensed was sincere about it, uh, was some of the best advice I got. And I didn't even start wrestling. I didn't even start training until five or six years later. Uh, and what he said stuck to me, some of the things he told me. And they turned out to be true. Um, so for me, Snooker was an interesting death. His whole last year, year and a half of his life was an interesting time for me because it was hard to, it was hard for me to balance in my mind what was looking more and more like truthful what happened in that hotel room to the man that I met that one brief time. Um, so it, that was, that was, a, that was, a, it was tough. I didn't cry. I was just very emotionally torn. I think you could understand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I really do uh, feel bad for Tamina because no matter what happened, regardless of what happened, that's still her father. That's her, you know, you know. That's her dad. That's her mm -hmm. dad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, even Adolf Hitler had a mom and a dad. I mean, let's be honest. I'm not comparing Jimmy to Adolf. I'm just saying, mm -hmm. you know. Right. Well, if, if we're talking about famous families uh, in wrestling and, and, and passing of, of, of members of famous family, there's two that I'd like to discuss briefly. I don't know if they're on your list, but we lost Smith Hart and Chavo, Chavo Guerrero Sr. this year as well. Mm -hmm. um, you're, you're a big fan of WWF. What, do you know anything about Smith? Well, obviously he's Brett's brother. I want to say he's the oldest brother in the Hart family. I really didn't see much of his wrestling work because I, he didn't really work for WWE much. I think he may have made an appearance or two, but I think he mainly was known for Stampede, and I think he actually restarted Stampede a few years ago. Yeah, I think it was him and, him and Keith that re-ran, started it up again. I could be wrong on that. But that's really where I know him from is, you know, he's part of the Hart family and he, he wrestled and promoted and all that. And uh, he's several years older than Brett. I want to say he was 68 when he passed. Mm -hmm. 
Um, because uh, I think I think Brett just turned just turned sixty. Oh my goodness, too, and hell, I had like what twenty eight kids. <laughs> As Bobby Heenan would say, you know, oh, she had how many in the first litter? <laughs> I mean, logistically, I think there's what twelve kids in the, in the Hart family. Is that correct? I believe that's correct. Yeah. Wow, Stu and Helen, man, kudos to y'all. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who could go through childbirth twelve times? <laughs> you had to be. You, they had to have. He had to have been successful as a promoter because he just he couldn't afford to have that many kids otherwise. He had to be at the mind to have that huge old crazy house they had on the hill, Calgary. Can you imagine having that many siblings in one house at one time? Wow. No. no. And that's a, that's a family that, Lord, we don't need to talk about the tragedy that poor family has, has had to deal with, you know. And it's, once again, though, is wrestling, I think as much as we were singing the praises of the NLIs and the Polynesians, I think you could, the same can be said for the Hart family when it comes to the history and legacy of the professional wrestling business. Don't you agree? Agreed, yeah. Uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, Smith was one of the Hart brothers that climbed the cage in, at the 1994 SummerSlam when... Uh, Brett was I facing so. Owen, and this is probably the one that I remember most. At, at WrestleMania 26 in 2010, uh, Smith was actually at ringside for that match where they teased joining Vince, but then double-crossed right. Vince. Right, right, right. Um, well, the other one we mentioned that's from a legendary family would be Chavo Sr. Um, you probably know a little bit more about him than you do Smith, don't you? Yeah, naturally, because he, he was, of course, Eddie's brother and the the, the father of... Mm-hmm. Chavo Jr., naturally, and was actually making appearances for WWE as a character about 10 years ago under the name Chavo Classic. And uh, really, again, famous family, had a heck of a career in Mexico. And, you know, really, I think you could argue that uh, as far as, you know, comparing him to Eddie, he may have been a better in-ring worker than Eddie was, but Eddie was kind of the better total package. Is that fair to say? I would, I would agree with that. I, for me, Chavo, to me, I have a lot of memories of Chavo and Hector, quite frankly. They were both underneath guys here in the Carolinas when I really started getting into wrestling in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, they would come in for the Crockett's, and um, I, I know through talking to guys that worked those shows that, they often were, Chavo and Hector were in the first couple of matches, yet their pay was not commensurate with that. They were getting paid close to what the main event guys were paid because they were so good and they were so seasoned at that point. That was the match that they were putting guys that they saw potential in. And they needed somebody like Chavo or like Hector to get in there and take care of them and teach them. So if you understand the pay scale work in the old territories, you know, your placement on the card also dictated what kind of payoff you got. And the fact that these guys were in the opening, you know, two or three matches and were making close to what the, what the, you know, the, the main event was off that gate, that should tell you something about how well-respected they were, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. And, and the thing that I always noticed about Hector and, and, and Chavo, and I, I especially saw this with Chavo in his runs in World Class right before World Class blew up into, you know, due to the Von Erich Freebird feud. Chavo was, was one of the top baby faces, you know, in a territory where it was hard to be a top baby face unless your last name was Von Eric, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And they were essentially, you know, remember a different time now. The Guerreros, led by Chavo Sr., were ethnic white meat baby faces, not dissimilar from, you know, Jack Junkyard Dog as a black guy. Obviously, he was a bigger. I mean, 
his arguably junkyard dog for a period there was the biggest star in all of wrestling for about a year period there in the early eighties. I think that can be said, but, um, especially in the mid South territory, but, um, that that's unique. And, and watching them, it was obvious to me that they could do all this old school wrestling, you know, the holes and stuff and tell a story, but they had an athleticism to them and a style that incorporated Lucha Libre spots well before we knew what Lucha Libre was here north of the border. And they, they still mix it in with an American style. And so they were doing cool stuff as a fan that nobody else, even athletic, you know, um, non-ethnic guys like, like a Ricky Steamboat or a Ricky Morton were do, weren't even doing stuff like this. Uh, so that was one of the things that always stuck out to me about Chavo. And we will, we'll talk about this later in the podcast. You cannot underscore the importance of the Guerreros to the, the Los Angeles territory for the Lavelles in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and on top of all the success they had in Mexico and on the border in El Paso. Um, so anyway, it, it's Chavo was, he was really, I think, not as, he's not, doesn't get as much love of, that he, as he should for being a guy that started to slowly change the business as far as moveset and, you know, just, just a, a different kind of athleticism being brought to the ring. He used to do this spot um, where he would essentially do a handstand and hook his legs on the guy's head and then do walk on his hands and spin the guy around in a 360 and get him dizzy, similar to like an airplane spin, and then flip him over and they take a flip bump like he was doing a flying hit system, which was like this amazingly athletic move 20 years before we ever saw anybody do anything even similar to that. How cool mm-hmm. is that? Yeah. If I understand it right, uh, Chavo was the oldest of the Guerrero brothers and Eddie was the youngest. And there mm-hmm. was, there's a real gap between Hector and Eddie. If I, Because uh, I think... Chavo was 18 when when Eddie was born. Yeah, so that's, that's right. That's why Eddie, Eddie and Chavo Jr. are more like brothers because of their age. You know, right. Chavo was married and having kids when Eddie was born, <laughs> or right. getting close to it. Right, and and that's why it looks so weird to see Chavo Jr. call Eddie Uncle Eddie, even though it, you know it's true. Mm-hmm. Chavo probably of uh, you know until Eddie came along. When you talk to three, you know Hector Mondo and Chavo Chavo Senior. Chavo was was probably Hector was probably the best athlete. Chavo probably had the most charisma, and Mondo was probably the toughest. Um, and I think that, that they would tell you that as well. But Chavo just had a little bit better mic skills and was a little bit better looking facially than Hector or Mondo. So he had more of the baby face thing to him, but could be a very effective heel when he wanted to be. Make no bones about it. All those Guerreros, when they want to be dastardly heels, were outstanding at it. There's a reason why they're, you know, the patriarch of that family, Gory Guerrero, was called Gory. He gave himself that name, and it did mean exactly what you think, bloody Gory, because he liked to bust guys open. And the Guerreros, um, the whole family, Chavo included, they're not ones to be messed with. They're, they're, they're tough guys. Are they Brock Lesnar tough? No, but they wouldn't, Brock down, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't back down from a fight with a guy like Brock either. That's the kind of guys they were and are. Well, is there anybody else we haven't missed that you want to mention that passed away this year? Yeah, there is definitely one worth mentioning. I'm not terribly familiar with his career. He had a heel run in WWE uh, with a similar gimmick that he had uh, in the territories before that, and that's Ron Bass. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Ron's another one I'm going to miss. Uh, Ron was, he had, uh, you know, it was brought up in our, in our uh, Wrestling from Florida episode by Chris Nelson that when Dusty came here to the Carolinas, 
and that kind of rang the death toll for the Florida Territory. He brought a lot of his guys with him, and Ron was one of those guys that was mentioned by by name by Chris. Uh, I remember my earliest memories of Ron Bass were on a heel run here in the Carolinas, pre to the run he had at WWF that you're talking about, with J.J. Dillon uh, and a successful tag team with Black Bart. And I loved Ron Bass. Uh, he was your typical cowboy gimmick, big dude, 6'4", 6'5", handlebar, sweet handlebar mustache, uh, you know, what, complete with the wax and the curled tips. Spurs on his boots. Uh, spurs in his boots, big dude, wore, used the claw and wore the glove for his finisher, you know. Um, and I would dare say, in my opinion, after Blackjack and Stan Hansen, he was probably the best cowboy gimmick in, at that time. He really was, and for me he was. And other people might argue that, but, um, I mean, it's, and when you're comparing guys to Stan Hansen and, and, and Blackjack Mulligan for cowboy gimmicks, that's high cotton, you know. That's so... He turned babyface there at the end and turned on J.J. Dillon because J.J. was focusing too much on uh, Nature Boy Buddy Landell as his ward. So that was a fun angle. Um, and then, of course, he left and went to the career that you were talking about. But when I trained to wrestle, uh, I brought up before that my, my trainer's wife uh, was this Tracy Richards, who was a female wrestler, former world tag team, women's tag team champion, with her trainer, Beverly Shea. And... Um, she was really close to the Bassett. And apparently, Ron Bass and his brother Don were quite successful heel tag team in uh, the, most of the Southern Territories back in the 60s and 70s. And what was unique about them was that their their manager was Ma Bass, and she was supposed to be like the mother of these two rough-and-tumble uh, cowboys, Ron and Don, and they were real-life brothers. And we lost Don a few years ago. Um and it was played up that, you know, she was kind of like Ma Barker and the Barker gang, but it was with the Western gimmick. Well, the truth be told, Ma Barker just looked older than she really was. She was actually married to Don, Ron's brother. She was, <laughs> but I mean, that was unique when we're talking about the, the 60s and 70s. Uh, this is before Sherry. This is before Baby Doll. This is before a Liz. There was no such thing as female valets or managers back then. And she was a... A, a very aggressive, get physically involved in match heel manager as a woman. So that's that, that's kind of cool, you know. But I, I liked Ron Bass. I think he was underrated. Do I? I mean, he wasn't Ric Flair. He wasn't Mickey Steamboat. But he was really good. He made a lot of money. He was a great heel when he wanted to babyface. He was good at it. Uh, he's just one of those guys that I think fans need to understand. And I see this a lot with fans. They want everybody to be Ric Flair of the Rock. Well, not everybody can be Ric Flair of the Rock. It takes, it takes mid-card guys to, to make a wrestling show. And it takes solid guys who are good at characters, can pull off middle-of-the-card angles. And to me, that's what Ron Bass was. He was one of the best at that, at that particular kind of placement on the card, uh, especially for his era. And that's the foundation. Those guys and enhancement guys, that's the foundation wrestling's built on. You don't have those. You don't have the Rocks and Ric Flair's. So, um, you know, it's always sad when you see those types go. They're the kind that really, that's the salt and pepper of, of, of what pro wrestling is. I hope this doesn't come out the wrong way, but you know, when, you, when you were saying about a ma, you know, I was almost picturing Vicki Lawrence in her, in her mama's place get it. <laughs> 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 that's funny because, I mean, once again, a woman who was actually much younger than she looked when she put the wig on and everything, right? Right. Ma Barker actually dressed uh, in, in, like, Western gear. 
You know, she would wear the cowboy hat, the cow the cowgirl hat, and the boots, and, and and lived the whole gimmick with them. You know, and my understanding was they actually incited riots in places like Gulf Coast and Florida back in the day. I mean, she was she was every bit the you know the the the, the rile up the crowd type of heel manager of say a Jim Cornette or a Bobby Heenan, and she was not afraid to to, to stir up that kind of that kind of heat, and that was. That was how you made your money back then. You know, if you didn't get somebody mad enough to come pay and see you get your butt whooped, then you weren't making money. So, you know, kudos to her. Um, you know, funny thing about the Basses in general and, and, and Ma Bass in particular. Uh, if you remember that old show, the old uh, roundtable show that they used to have on uh, WWE On Demand, I think they're available on the network now, like the Legends of Wrestling, where they would talk. It's not that dissimilar from the format we do here, but they would have a panel of, of, of former wrestlers and, and wrestling personalities on it. You're familiar with that show, are you not? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they had one about managers one time. And the panel, I can't remember who was on the panel, but I do remember that Michael P.S. Hayes was on the panel. And Michael Hayes brought up the fact uh, that uh, he was a big fan of the Basses, and, and no small part of that was because of Ball Bass. And at the end of the show, I can't remember if it was Gene Okerlund or J.R. who was hosting, he asked each one of the, the panel members to give their Mount Rushmore of managers. Well, I can't remember if it was J.J. Dillon or, or uh, Michael Hayes, but one of them put Ma Bass on theirs because of the riots. They saw personally saw them in sight in the, in the Gulf Shores territory. <laughs> so <laughs> what does that tell you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a few more on the list here. Uh, no relation to Ron Bass, but Nicole Bass, who had a bit of a run in the Attitude Era WWE, mm-hmm. she passed this year. My main memories really were just of her, her WWE run and uh, – I think she was like the bodyguard for Sable or something like that. Yeah, right. They tried. They did a little brief little angle where she was she was infatuated with uh, Val Venus. I remember that classic Vince Russo, you know, sexual entendre kind of booking. And uh, you know, Susan helped train her a little bit, and that one uh, hurt Susan a lot. Said that you know she wasn't ever a great wrestler, but was a really sweet gal. And Larry Sharp, who I think maybe might be better known as a trainer than an in-ring wrestler because of the people he helped train. Yeah, the Monster Factory. That was guys like uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, and uh, I want to say one of the runner, one or both the Road Warriors might have trained with him. Uh, I know a lot of the guys that were from that part of the country, the Midwest, that didn't train with Vern, trained with him. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm sorry, Bam Bam Bigelow, uh, in my opinion, is, is enough alone. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, Balls Mahoney, uh, King Kong Bundy, uh, Tatanka. Yeah, okay. It seems like, you know, when you talk about guys like that, Monster Factory was an apt name because those were all big dudes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Balls was the smallest, and Balls was 300-pounder, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, I'm also seeing a Raven. Uh, Char- yeah, Trout Raven, yes. Yeah, Char- Charles Wright, you know, Godfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I, I, I might have mentioned D'Lo Brown uh, already, but some pretty impressive names there. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know. This is almost going to speak you dead. I don't know how many guys he actually got in the ring and trained with, but it was his school. So, you know. A modern trainee, uh, Seamus. Seamus actually trained there as well. Wow, there you go. Okay, the last two. Any thoughts on Mr. Pogo or Otto Vons? Mm, Mr. Pogo was one of the original hardcore guys for hardcore existed. Uh, that's about all I know about him. And, and Otto Vons, I mean, he was an AWA world champion. He was it for wrestling in Germany for how many years? Yeah, that, that, that's my understanding. He's, he, he was a bigger star overseas than here. He's probably best known for beating Vern for the AWA title, and I want to say it was 80 or 81. Well, let's put, let's put in perspective what Otto Vons was. 
Otto Vons was the promoter in Austria and Germany. Schwarzenegger has talked about long before he came to America, when he was just a burgeoning amateur bodybuilder in Austria, his biggest sports idol was Otto Vons. What does that tell you? Absolutely. Oh, and I got it wrong. It was actually uh, it was actually Nick Bockwinkel that Otto Vons beat in 1982. Right. Obviously, I mean, the list we've given here is not extensive. There have been many deaths. I just figured them. Mm-hmm. We've given a lot of ones to think about, ones that are, you know, I think, obviously some of them, like Lance Russell, Bobby Heenan, Ivan Koloff, these are, you know, legendary uh, guys that are, you know, any wrestling list is not not complete without mentioning these guys. Um and you know we'll lose. We'll that's the unfortunate truth of, of this this life. We all are going to die somebody, and unfortunately, next this time next year we'll be doing this again for 2018. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I've said it before, and I'll say it again: with the network, with YouTube, with the technology we have now, we're we're at such a time where it, it's just wonderful that we can. A lot of these 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 guys that we mentioned and gals we mentioned, we can go back and see their work and see what they they brought to the wrestling business and, and we're fortunate to be in that position. So they may be gone, but they'll never be forgotten because it'll be there for time, all time now. Agreed. Well, on that note, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what 2018 is going to hold for classic wrestling memories. This is classic wrestling memories. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Like people can go anywhere. I mean, it's, 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 it's a podcast. <laughs> If you're looking for a gaming-oriented podcast, then look no further than You Just Got Fried. Join host Jared Aubrey and his panel of enthusiasts as they talk the news and video games, achievements, and, of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at YouJustGotFried.com, part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family. All right, welcome back, folks. Classic Wrestling Memories, and we're going to wind up our discussion with some of the subjects we're considering doing in 2018. And if you want to drop us a line and let us know what you want to hear, the website is ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The Twitter, since we are part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family, is TWBP Show on Twitter. Uh, and I can be reached at Seth at A1-Wrestling.com. And Train, you can be reached at CrazyTrain underscore JB on, on Twitter, right? That's correct. We're all ears. If there's something you want to hear us talk about, we're definitely interested in... in talking about what you want to hear. Uh, like I said, our, our cutoff does tend to be like Attitude Era, but anything Attitude Era and before is fair game. Now, I got three subjects here that I think would make great future shows, and we, we'd discuss them all off mic uh, in passing. One of them would be music in wrestling, you know, like what makes great theme music. I want to discuss some of the... I mean, it's such a fascinating history. Uh, the time before... Um, you know, when promoters didn't care about copyright laws and they were using just regular music to what we have today and people like, you know, Jimmy Hart and Jim Johnston and, and what they brought to the, uh, which is kind of topical right now since just recently was let go, which was shocking to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that as, as much as, you know, people like Gordon Soley and JR and the King and Shivani are our soundtrack to wrestling as fans, the music is too. And, I I would love to discuss to you some of the things that I teach when I train guys about how important their music should be and uh, what I was taught about what what it should do and how you should come up with a theme song. Um, It's definitely uh, an integral part of uh, what makes a wrestler a wrestler nowadays. I mean, without the breaking glass, it's Stone Cold, Stone Cold. Without 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's Flare, Flare. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that, that's just two examples I can come off the top of my head. And on top of that, I think a lot of times that people think, well, oh, it was just the, it was just the, the free birds coming out to Leonard Skinner. Ah, there was some before that. And we, we could talk about some of that, too, and who it was and what it was and how important it was to their characters. But anyway. We talked about tag teams a little bit earlier and arguably the greatest tag team feud of all time, the Rock and Roll Express mm-hmm. versus the Midnight Express. Now, don't hold me to this. If if we do that one, a lot of that is going to be dependent listeners on me nailing down Punky, Ricky Morton, to come on the show and do it. Uh, he has told me he would, but that was before he started doing his own podcast, which is another podcast I would strongly suggest. Uh, it's called the School of Morton Podcast. Uh, Ricky is a fantastic storyteller and hilarious. Uh, I mean, everybody loves Punky. Punky's Punky. Um, <laughs> uh, and I, I'd love to get him and... Um, and Hoot, but Hoot's even harder to nail down than, than, than Ricky, but I'm definitely going to focus on doing that in 2018. I've been saying for two years I'm going to do it, and it, it, it's tough. Between my schedule and, and both their schedules, it can be difficult, but uh, you know, I, I would love to have them on, and even if we don't have them on, I still think it's, it, it should be talked about, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I've said before that my favorite type of wrestling match is just a standard tag team match, because it's so easy to get more creative with finishes and have the finishes be clean and whether the heroes win or lose, you can still have them lose cleanly, but still show that they have a fighting chance. Oh yeah. There's a lot of aspects I think to the psychology of a tag team wrestling that people don't under, they don't, they don't know about it, even though they don't, they're seeing it when it's done right and they don't realize why they're enjoying it so much. And I, I, I definitely bring that up on that particular podcast and that that one i want to do um is uh, to continue the one-on-one series i'd love to do a one-on-one series just on tag team wrestling as a whole um and about that and it ties into the midnight express rock and roll express uh, podcast simply in the fact that uh you know about half of my career i was a very successful tag team wrestler and not to put myself over even though that's what i'm doing uh a lot of times especially later in my career when i would wrestle younger tag teams um me and my partner, Dr. Feelgood, would get asked a lot, wow, that was fun, and that was a great spot, and, well, I see why you wanted to do this from the younger tag teams we had wrestled. And the most common question we got was, where did you learn how to do that? Where did you come up with that spot? And our answer was always the same. Uh, Watch as many Rock and Roll Express versus Midnight Express matches as we could. (laughs) (laughs) That was the truth. That's where we got 75% of our of of our not only our our moves just put our own spin on it, but our understanding and psychology of tag team wrestling for me and Doctor Feelgood came from growing up on that feud and also getting the the you know the wonderful opportunity to work in the ring with and against some uh, you know all those guys at some point, um, all three of the Midnight's and both Punky and Who. So wow, uh, and that that's one that if I could swing it. I would love to have Chris Nelson back on uh, and his partner, uh, uh, Vivacious Vito, who is uh, together were the New Heavenly Bodies and three times the NWA World Tag Team Champions, and probably get my whole tag team partner, Dr. Feelgood, on. And so I think Seth would just like to sit back and listen to two former tag teams that both had a lot of success in the 90s talk about tag team wrestling. I think you'd be in heaven for that one, wouldn't you, Seth? Oh, oh yeah, I abs- absolutely. I would just sit back with a cocktail and... Uh... Just listen. <laughs> <You know>? Take notes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Well, the last one on my list, and this was an idea of mine, because again, kind of going back to when we talked about Florida or Memphis, it's a territory that I would have to research and learn about because a lot of great talent came from this territory, including uh, Tom Zank, I think, had probably his biggest push in the territory, and that's Portland. And we'll be talking about some of the Don Owen run uh, years. Arguably, the biggest name to come out of the Portland territory is Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yep. And when you say Roddy Piper, that's top 10 biggest stars of all time in any era. So, wow. You know, it, it, there's a lot of other good guys that came out of that. It's a fascinating territory to me. It was essentially, once the territory system had died, and it was, uh, you know, just WCW and WWE, or WWF at the time, there were really only two territories left, Portland and Memphis. And Memphis was working in conjunction or at least had a you know a, a working relationship with Vince. Portland didn't even have that. So they were essentially the last of the territories. That makes it a fascinating uh, territory to talk about to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, some, some interesting stories I've heard from guys. Uh, uh, Scott Levy was, uh, you know, Braven had a, a run there early on, one of the first areas he got a push in. Uh, and I've heard, I've heard him on his podcast and in locker rooms tell some wonderful stories about the Portland territory. And it's worth mentioning, just in our little tease about uh, this episode, Roddy actually went back and did dates for Portland while he was still working for Vince. And that speaks volumes for yeah. both Roddy and Vince, quite frankly. Uh, and Don Owen. Let's be, let's, 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 let's not leave him out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, very fascinating. Uh, you mentioned it earlier. I think we probably will do a full-on um, episode about Lance Russell he, with his passing and few months ago it's definitely merits uh discussion he's if jr and and gordon are number one and number two all time as announcers he's definitely number three um tony Schiavone has openly said he doesn't think he'll ever be asked to be inducted into the wwe hall of fame but he would say no until until uh, uh lance russell and bob Cottle went into before him because they both deserve to go in before him so what does that tell you mm-hmm. about lance russell yeah um, but anyway, uh, I mean, I was shocked he said he, he said Bob Cottle, too, but happy because Bob Cottle was the announcer of my youth, but I digress. Uh, one that I want to do in, in 2018 is uh, we discussed it earlier with the passing of Chavo Guerrero Sr. and also was integral uh, for Roddy Piper with the Los Angeles Territory, the territory that, you know, was essentially one of the first territories to be on national television in the 50s with Gorgeous George and... Uh, Freddie Blassie and that stuff all the way through to the, the, the run in the 70s and 80s with the Guerreros and Roddy Piper. So I think that would be a fascinating territory to talk about. I would have to do some research myself on it, um, but uh, I think it's one of those territories that kind of gets forgotten sometimes because it's you know, out in the West Coast, so mm-hmm. just like Portland. Um, another one we've discussed talking about uh, as far as that I think would be fun, that, as far as individuals, I would love to do one in 2018 on Ricky Dozen and the birth of pro wrestling and Japanese pro wrestling. I think now that you're a fan of Japanese wrestling, you might enjoy doing that one as well. Seth, do you have any thoughts on doing Ricky Dozen? I would be all for that. There's a fun video out there. Now, some of the facts are off, and he actually admits that probably some of his facts are off, and he's just doing it from memory. But David Lee Roth, yes, that David Lee Roth, did a monologue about the life of Ricky Dozen and... You know, he's a great storyteller, and it really made me want to learn more about Ricky Dozen because you're talking about the guy who basically paved the way for Inoki and uh, 
Giant Baba and these guys that became the biggest promoters in Japan. Uh, it, it, it's about basically their mentor and his career both in ring and as somebody just that, that kind of brought that model, that American wrestling model to Japan and popularized it. Sure. I often say that uh, when in any entertainer or, or person becomes synonymous with their particular genre, like, say, old Bob Marley being synonymous with reggae, that's an amazing thing. There's a lot of legendary country singers, a lot of legendary rock singers and stuff, but, I mean, rock and roll is always going to be synonymous with Elvis. You know, uh, reggae is always going to be synonymous with Bob Marley. Uh, you know, par- uh, Parliament Funkadelic and George Clinton are always going to be synonymous with funk. Well, Ricky Dozen will always be synonymous with Japanese pro wrestling. Another territory that we could do, you know, you brought up Los Angeles. I think another territory that's worth men- mentioning is uh, Roy Shire's San Francisco territory. Yes, and and Susan has told me she wants to come back on and do an episode about that because she talked about San Francisco briefly in her time on, on episode two. She loved San Fr- working for San Francisco. She loved working for Roy Shire, and it was one of her best territories. And she can give you some really, really good, interesting stories about uh, the San Francisco territory and working there. And it's it's noteworthy to our listeners. Remember, that's the territory that made Pat Patterson a, a huge star. And it's also the territory that Dave Meltzer grew up watching. That's the territory that made Dave Meltzer a wrestling fan. So take that for what it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> so that gives you a glimpse as far as what we have in store for Classic Wrestling Memories in 2018. Again, if you want to drop us a line, let us know what you want to hear. Uh, there are Facebook comments at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. We're on Twitter at TWBP Show. On Twitter, I can be reached at Seth at A1-Wrestling.com. And Train, once again, where can be where can you be reached on Twitter? I'm always available at CrazyTrain underscore JB on Twitter. With that, I want to wish all of our listeners a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, Merry Festivus, Happy Solstice. Whatever you celebrate this holiday season, we wish you good fortune. With that, we are going to mosey on out to the sunset. This Once again, this is our last all-original episode for 2017. We'll be having the flashback Susan Tex Green show up shortly. This has been Classic Wrestling Memories, and we will talk to you folks again in 2018. Have a safe and happy New Year, folks. Thank you for listening. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.